Tonight's reading is um, Isaiah 25. It's found on page 709 in your church Bible, verses 1 to 8, page 709. It's entitled, Praise to the Lord. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners, as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Um, well, good evening again, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for your very warm welcome to us. We've really appreciated that, and it's great to be here. And it's a real privilege to be able to uh, look together at God's Word. So I'm really looking forward to this. Shall we pray as we start? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your living Word to us in the Bible. And we thank you so much for this time together, hearing from you and seeing how you would shape our lives. Dear Lord, please help me to be clear and faithful. And I pray that you give us all soft hearts to respond to you rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I guess many of you might be wondering, uh, why on earth are we looking at this seemingly random chapter in this old, old book of the, uh, of the Bible, the book of Isaiah? This morning and this evening we're thinking about uh, church's role in God's mission across different cultures. And yet tonight we're reading from the Old Testament, centuries before Jesus Christ. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Well, there are all sorts of reasons uh, for reading Isaiah. Because this book says a huge amount about God, and specifically about how God relates to people of every different nationality, ethnicity, culture, and religion. And for example, it says a huge amount about God's control over human history around the world. It says a huge amount about God's attitude to different spiritual beliefs around the world. And it says a huge amount about God's uniqueness as being the one true creator God. But in particular tonight, Isaiah gives us the most remarkable glimpse of what is to come, the future. What does the future hold for humanity in its kaleidoscope of different forms? And he gives us this glimpse in a vision. It's an apocalyptic vision. Is that exciting? That is exciting. This vision is so rich 
so powerful, so profound, that if we grasp it, it will have a massive impact on how we live our lives today. We live in a world, we live in a town with diverse backgrounds, diverse religious beliefs, and diverse cultural values. And this apocalyptic vision, this glimpse of the future, it really matters to us. Let's first think about the context of Isaiah here. Uh, So Isaiah was, if you don't know, he was a prophet in and around Jerusalem in about the 7th, 8th century BC. And the nation of Israel, God's chosen people at that time, they had, well, they'd stuffed up completely, completely. They have effectively run away from the living God and they've run after their own kind of pretend gods, really. And because, because of this, they're a mess. They're a complete mess. Internally, their society is unjust. They've got corrupt leaders. They're neglecting the poor. Externally, they are, well, they're terrified of being invaded the whole time. So they kind of make alliances with other corrupt countries. Anyway, they're a mess. Inside and out, they're a complete mess. Now, because of this mess and their sin, in the first 24 chapters of Isaiah, there is a constant drumbeat going on, going through it. God keeps on saying to Israel, I will judge you for what you've done wrong. I will judge you. In fact, I will judge you, and I'll judge all the nations around you, whether they're your allies or your enemies. No one does right. I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge everyone. And it climaxes in chapter 24, which uh, predicts God devastating the whole earth. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1 says this. says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. Everyone's going to get judged. It's a picture of the future. Everyone's going to get judged. All nations, all peoples. It's the same for everyone. It's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. But that is not the end of it. Because here in chapter 25, there's this vision looking beyond that judgment, right at the climax of history. It's a vision of hope for Israel, and it's a vision of hope for all the earth. And in summary, the vision is this. The vision is this. All nations will be celebrating. All nations will be celebrating. I want to go, we'll go through this vision asking five questions about this vision. We'll be looking specifically verse, verses 6 to 8, looking at those three verses. Five questions, really. What's the occasion of this vision? What's happening? Oh, sorry, where is it happening? Who's there? What are they doing? And what are they wearing? Okay, those five questions. So we'll go through these in turn. Let me read verse 6 first. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Our first question is, what's the occasion of this vision? Well, the occasion is that God is being crowned. In the ancient Near East, uh, when kings and queens got crowned, they would have this enormous great big feast. Here's one example. Records show that a king called Ashurbanipal had a coronation feast with a hundred fat oxen, a thousand calves and sheep, 500 ducks, 500 geese, 10,000 eggs, why not, 
10,000 loaves of bread, 10,000 jugs of beer, and 10,000 skins of wine. That's big. That's really big. The point was, have a massive party to impress everyone and show them that your reign's going to be great. That's what's happening here. It's a coronation feast. Except it's God being crowned. It's God being crowned. And this was predicted in the last verse of chapter 24, where it says, the Lord Almighty will reign. And it's clear here in 25 verses 6 to 8, who is the center of attention here? The Lord Almighty, the Sovereign Lord, in verse 6 and verse 8. The occasion is, God is being crowned. Now in this vision, where's this coronation happening? That's our second question. Well, it's happening in the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 6 and 7 say the location is on this mountain. Did you see it? On this mountain. Now this mountain refers to Mount Zion, which is the hill of Jerusalem, with God's temple where God lived symbolically with his people. And in the future, God promises to live with his people, not just symbolically, but totally in the heavens. So this vision, it's of God being crowned, and it's in the heavenly Jerusalem. Now our third question, who is there when this happens? Who has been brought through the devastating judgment to be here? Verse 6, all peoples. Verse 7, all peoples, all nations, all the earth. The guests at this coronation feast come from every single group of people on the face of this earth. Now, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I wonder, what do you think about that? How does that strike you? I mean, you know, every type of person there at the end of all things with God, really? I thought Christianity was a Western thing or just for a few ethnic groups. Or just a middle class thing. Maybe you're surprised. For Christians, we might be quite familiar with this, actually. Perhaps even over-familiar. This is an amazing thing to say here. Do you know how many people groups there are in the world today? There are 17,000. Sorry, I didn't let you know whether that was a real question or a rhetorical question. There are 17,000 people groups in the world today. That is a vast, vast number. And how many of them will be absent from God's coronation feast? None. None. Zero. Do you know how many of those people groups in the world today are currently unreached? There's no Christian church there. How many are unreached? 7,000. How many of those will be absent at this coronation feast of God? None. None will be absent. But they haven't even heard about Jesus yet. Well, but there will be people from those groups at God's coronation. There will be. Isn't that amazing? I find it so, so helpful to remember this. Uh, on my street back home, uh, I have neighbors from uh, China, from Hong Kong, from France, Italy, Poland, Australia, Spain, Algeria, Romania, England. Ireland, I'm sure there's Scottish and Welsh there. I'm not sure I've met them. Um, Portugal, Turkey, Sri Lanka, Thailand. 
all those nations will be represented in the future at God's coronation feast. Maybe it could be my neighbours, even though um, not many are Christians. They are all invited, every single one. He will be there, people of all nations, all nations. Now our fourth question. At this glorious feast, what will people be doing? What will they be doing? Maybe you notice what they'll be doing. They'll be eating and drinking. Of course they will. It's a feast. That's what you do at a feast. But this won't be any old food and drink. It will be the very, very best of food and drink. The very, very best. Verse 6 again. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. The best. The finest. In fact, when it says a feast of rich food, it literally says a feast of fatness. Might not sound very attractive to you. Uh, but the fat of the meat was thought to be the very, very best part. In fact, when the people of Israel sacrificed meat to God at the temple, they would sacrifice the fat. The fat was reserved for God himself. And now... Here in this vision, God is preparing the fat for all his guests. Now, this is significant. This vision of this banquet, it's not like um, a kind of global buffet. It's not like a global food food hall. I mean, I love those places. That was a great one at university. I loved it. Went there the whole time. You go around getting a different dish from different parts of the world, different countries. This vision is not like that. It's not that... God gives the very best fish and chips to the Brits or the very best curry to the Indians. It's not like that, as if someone would think, nah, I don't like that other stuff. It's not that. What it is, is this vision, God will provide the best, the fat, the food and drink that is so good that it satisfies everyone, wherever they're from, whatever their taste. It's like my Sri Lankan uh, neighbor being given this food and think, wow, that is the best food I've ever tasted. And then they pass it on to my Thai neighbor and he says, oh, that's the best food I've ever tasted as well. Then you pass it on to my Algerian neighbor and so on. The same food satisfies everyone equally. It's a glorious vision of how people from every single nation and culture in the world will be truly satisfied in the living creator God, the God of the Bible. And one of the best, very helpful ways, I think, to to help this sink in um, is to read about or talk to, I mean, a Christian believer who didn't uh, grow up in a a Christian family, perhaps, but but perhaps grew up in a different religious background, like uh, perhaps someone who's brought up as a Muslim, and maybe they quite liked being a Muslim in many ways. But in turning to Christ, they found true freedom, true love, true hope. There are many like that. What a vision we've seen so far. What a vision. But one final question at this point. One final question. What are the guests wearing? What are they wearing? They might be wearing their national cultural dress, perhaps. 
but they also enter wearing funeral veils. Now that's strange. Verse 7 refers to um, a shroud that enfolds all peoples, a sheet or veil covering that covers all nations. And verse 8 explains that death is being talked about here. So the guests at this feast, they're they're wearing funeral veils, symbolizing the fact that death is like a veil that hangs over all people everywhere. When you think about it, the funeral veil is a very, very powerful image. There's There's no light underneath, is there? It's just darkness. There's no light. It's gone because life has gone. Someone has died. It's a very powerful image. Death hangs over all people. No one can escape it. No one can escape its sorrow. And even though people in different cultures respond to death in all sorts of different ways, all nations would feel its sorrow. All nations do feel its sorrow. We all feel it. In white British culture, in funerals, it's common to keep the coffin closed. Not always, but often. I think often because people find it quite hard to kind of stare death in the face, as it were. In other cultures, it's far more common in funerals to keep the coffin open, even to have the body on display for hours or days, to try to come to terms with the, with the loss and the sorrow. But when someone has died, even if it is possible to move on to to some extent, at some point, the sorrow never really goes away. And we all know that that is where we will end up too. You can't escape it. So what will God do? What will God do? Verse 7. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. At this feast, God will take death and he'll swallow it up forever. He will destroy it. The Hebrew words um, for destroy and swallow up, it's actually the same Hebrew word. At this feast, God will swallow up death forever. In the ancient Near East, this word death uh, was often uh, symbolized as a person, a person who it was thought would, kind of, would literally swallow up people into the depths of the earth. A bit like a kind of the, Grim Reaper, the Grim Reaper figure in Western culture, but this figure would swallow up people to the depths of the earth. But here, the opposite happens. God swallows up death. I keep thinking back to old cartoons, you know, old cartoons where you get that, that bomb, enormous bomb, and the fuse is lit and it's going down. What to do? You can't get rid of the bomb anywhere. So what do you do? Daffy Duck or whoever, he throws the bomb in the air. It lands in his mouth, goes down to his stomach. Boom! Gone. Maybe let's have a burp. It's gone. It's ridiculous. But that's what's happening here. At this feast, God will take death and swallow it up forever. He'll destroy it. Boom! Gone. It will never come back. 
for people of every nation, the final enemy, the veil of death, is gone. And this is something that can only be done by the God who created all existence. He is the only being who is bigger than death. Can anyone else destroy it? Can anything else destroy it? Can any religion, any philosophy? You see what it's saying here. Whatever your background, your nationality, your culture, your only hope for destroying death is with the Creator God, the God of the Bible. And when this happens, verse 8, the Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. People's sorrows will be gone. What an attendant picture that is. And people's disgrace will be gone. Verse 8. Again, the Lord will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Because death has always been a sign of the world being under God's curse because of human sin. And with death gone, that disgrace has gone too. What a feast this will be. People of all nations singing around God's throne, celebrating the swallowing up of death. Can you imagine it? Do you think you'll be singing? I think so. What an amazing vision this is. And you know, it's not just Isaiah who saw this vision of the future. Because Jesus Christ, the center of the Christian faith, he saw it too. In fact, it's Jesus who is preparing it. When Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into the finest of wines, wasn't that a trailer, a preview, as it were, for this greater feast? He's preparing it. And in fact, it will be Jesus. It will be Jesus being crowned. He'll be crowned as the great king who willingly went to his death He was crucified and rose out of death so that people who trust in him will come through their own death and live with God forever. It will be Jesus being crowned. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus' resurrection. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And in Revelation 7, The Apostle Paul sees the same vision as Isaiah in verses 9 and 10. Let me read this. This vision of Jesus. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Jesus. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus will be crowned King of all nations because Jesus swallowed up death for all nations. That is why people will be celebrating. That is why. And Jesus invites us all. Well, let's think a bit further about how to respond to this, this vision of Jesus, this invitation from Jesus in this vision. How might we respond? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, Jesus says to you, first and foremost, come to me. That's what he says, come to me. He says, trust my promise that I can take you through judgment and death. 
to be there celebrating with God. Whatever your background, wherever you're from, whatever past you've had, whatever your ethnicity, your culture, you're, you're invited. Come to me. That's what Jesus says. And what better day to come to Jesus than today? You can do that in your heart and maybe uh, ask someone to pray for you afterwards. we pray with you afterwards. What better day to do it than today? What better day? And for those of us who are already um, Christian, who already trust and follow the Lord Jesus, um, what about how we can respond? Well, we could, there are all sorts of things we could say. We could talk about um, how welcoming our church is to people of different nations and cultures. We could talk about that. We could talk about um, in our church whether we uh, do we try and assimilate people of different cultures and nations to our to our, the predominant culture in our church. We could talk about that kind of thing. That'd be good to talk about. We could talk about uh, finding out ways of finding out who's in the in our neighborhoods, in our town, people of different nationalities, cultures to ourselves. We could talk about that. That would be a good thing to do. We could think of ways to engage with people who are from different ethnicities, cultures. We could think about that, engaging with them. But I think we really need to start by responding to this vision, by looking forward. We've got to look forward to this day. We've got to look forward to celebrating together. Does this vision excite you? I really hope so. Does it make you want to praise God more? He is the God of all peoples, and one day we will see it with our, with our very own eyes. Does that excite you? Let's look forward to that vision. Earlier I mentioned uh, my street with all those different nationalities. And it's been really helpful for me to, to pray, actually, um, imagining this vision, but with them, with my neighbours from many different backgrounds, imagining them being included. Imagining us all celebrating around the throne of Jesus together. That's where this vision takes us. It's been really helpful for me. And I think in looking forward like that, it helps us in response to move towards people who are different from ourselves. Because history is going towards that end of history. And we respond by moving towards people who are different to us, but who may be there celebrating around the throne of Jesus. So let's pray that this vision, this reality of what is to come, really changes us and changes our churches. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, you have shown us wonderful things tonight, things we could not imagine or dream up. Now one day you will be crowned and all people of all nations will be there. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that you are the God of all people. You are our sweetest satisfaction, our only hope beyond death, wherever we are from. Lord, we are sorry for the ways in which perhaps we look down on others, Uh, Sorry for our sense of superiority, perhaps, but thank you for forgiving us. And Lord, help us to live lives that reflect deeply this reality of where history will end up. That we would be people who long to tell others of Christ and who dare to dream that anyone can come to him. 
And we do pray, Father, that our churches, that this church here at Bishop Hannington, that we would have the courage to be a place for all people, to be hospitable and outward-looking. We pray that through that, it would be such a great blessing to many. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.